Good morning. It's nice to see you all here this morning. I hope you're having a Merry Christmas. And, and I say having because we are on the sixth day of Christmas, I believe, and I know that because the Hallmark Channel is still playing regularly in my house. And I'm actually not knocking uh, Hallmark movies as easy as that would be to do, because if I can be honest with you, and granted this is being recorded, so, but if I can be honest with you, I actually really have started to enjoy Hallmark movies. Um, you know, I, I know it's true, though. I mean, there, there's something about them that really draws you in. Now, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, about these uh, cheesy, predictable, sentimental Christmas movies, I can give you the plot of every single one in 30 seconds, right? Somebody from the big city comes into a small town. The town has this kind of weird obsession with Christmas that you don't want to really think too much about because it's uncomfortable, but, you know, they love Christmas. And throughout the course of the movie, this big city person... Um, kind of falls in love with the town and maybe a little special someone in it, right? And then the town kind of embraces this person, right, and wraps them into its arms, and they become this loving family, right? That's every movie you've watched this season, um, more or less. Well, I think one of the reasons that these movies um, have become a little more appealing to me and are so attractive to so many people is because they touch on our desire to belong. They touch on our desire to be a part of a community and a part of a family that doesn't just tolerate us, but delights in us, loves us, wants to draw us in. And what's remarkable about the end of all of these movies, right, is there's this family that's formed, this beautiful, loving family that's formed. Now, I want you to, to think about a dark twist on a Hallmark movie, and I hope I don't ruin them for you by saying this, but imagine for a second if a Hallmark movie, instead of the person coming into the town and, and becoming part of it, what if the person coming to the town had some absurd radical plague or disease and so could only admire the town from the outside? And so the movie was not about the town welcoming this person in, but having to keep them at arm's length or keep them in a quarantine, only able to look into and admire the town. The reason that I bring this dark version of Hallmark, and I hope it never gets made, um, to your attention is because that's much the state that we found ourselves in before Christ came. That longing and desire for community, but there was something in us, something imperfect in us that kept us separated from that light and that life, that kept us separated from that family with God. And it isn't that God did not desire to draw us into Himself, but perfection and imperfection cannot occupy the same space. As we heard in our gospel, God is light, and light and darkness cannot exist in the same space without darkness being obliterated. Do you all follow me so far? So this isn't a sermon about Hallmark movies. I know it seems like it so far. What the sermon's actually about is how God, desiring to be our Father, reached down for us and made it possible to draw us to Himself. And so, on to our three points from the book of Galatians this morning. Our three points are the desire of our adoption by the Father, the status of our adoption in the Son, and the experience of our adoption through the Holy Spirit. So, let's move on to our text and look at our passage from Galatians, starting in verse 23. 
Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. Now, what does this mean, this idea that we were uh, under the law, that the law was our guardian or our disciplinarian? Well, in ancient Greece and Rome, there was a practice by which, uh, you know, when your child was born, if you had the means, you would ship your child off as a newborn to a wet nurse. That child would then transition to a nanny. And at about the age of six, the child would go under um, a pedagogos, that is, a disciplinarian, a tutor. And the tutor's job was to raise that child from the age of about six to the age of about 14 and prepare that child for adulthood, to prepare that child to um, live in society as a functioning member. And this pedagogos was a, was a strong and harsh disciplinarian. Now, I know that there's a new Mary Poppins remake out, right? Is anybody looking to see that? Um, that's not what a pedagogos was. That is not what a disciplinarian was. In fact, this disciplinarian is kind of the anti-Mary Poppins in the way that uh, he was preparing, the way that they prepared these children. Um, these pedagogos, these disciplinarians, were known for, for pulling ears. Uh, they were known for whipping for caning, for pinching, and for using any means necessary to accomplish their task of raising these kids to adulthood. And this word, disciplinarian, pedagogos, is how Paul describes the law. The law, because God could not take us into His arms because of our sin and our imperfections, the law was given to us to shape us and form us, but the law is devoid of any parental affection. And you know this, right? On, um, on Christmas Day, Amy and I and our two kids went up to Lake Mary to spend the day with our family. And uh, we had a wonderful time. And, uh, you know, through the process, we, we have all these little kids, and they're tearing apart wrapping paper, and the room is becoming a mess, and it's just frenzy, right, of excitement and, and joy. And afterwards, as we're settling down, as we're eating far too much um, sweet food and kind of, you know, uh, recovering from that frenzy, I heard the worst sound a parent hears in the world. Silence. Right? You thought I was going to say a loud crash or a loud bang. No, that's not true. Those are, those are bad. But silence is actually kind of the worst sound you hear as a parent, right? Uh-oh. What are they into now? Well, so I go running back to the back of the house to look for my two-year-old son, Gabriel, and lo and behold, the back door is open. I didn't know he knew how to do that. Um, and so I go running frantically out of the house to find my son and uh, praise the Lord, and I mean that. Uh, my parents have a driveway that's so long that we had to turn it into a street, and so my son hadn't made it into any, you know, into any harm's way. He was maybe halfway down the driveway when I saw him, and I ran up to him, and I grabbed him, and I pulled him back in the house. And by the way, if you're going to send me an angry email about bad parenting, my email is crodriguez at trinity.org. No, you, you've all been there, right? I mean, we've all had that experience of, of panic for our kids. And so, anyway, I go and I grab him, and I bring him into the house, and guess what I do to him? I pull his ears and I cane him. No, I didn't do that. Um, what I did, though, 
Because my son is young and he's naive about the dangers of the outside world and he has a rebellious heart, as I put that house on lockdown, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it wasn't enough that the doors were locked. I had to push things up against the doors, right? I was tempted to kind of tie him to a piece of furniture to make sure he didn't go too far. I didn't do that, but I was tempted to. Well, the reason I, I, I tell you that is because this is the spirit in which God gave us the law to protect us, to guard us, to put us on lockdown. Because even like children, you and I can be naive about the dangers of the world around us. Even like children, you and I have rebellious hearts. And so God gave us the law originally to protect us because He could not yet give us Himself. But over time, the law turned from this fence of protection into a prison that kept us isolated. And rather than guide us, it began to condemn us because we failed to measure up to it. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in my household, we have a saver and a spender. Is that familiar to you all? Does, does anybody else have a household that kind of functions that way? You've got a saver and a spender. Um, I am the spender. I learned that within day two of our marriage, and my wife is the saver. And so, very quickly in our home, we found out that we needed a household budget to keep us afloat. And I have to tell you, when we sat down to do that, I thought it was a great idea, right? Here is a way to lay down the law and protect us from my spending. Here is a way to kind of keep me within bounds and to guide me, and surely this law would change my heart, and I would fall in love with this budget, and everything would go smoothly. Well, is that what happened? No, of course not. It took maybe two hours for me to realize that this budget, this law, was not a hedge of protection, but was a prison. And rather than guide me and guide my heart and transform the way I thought about money, all it did was make me take a look at the numbers in the budget and take a look at what I wanted to spend and condemn me, right, for my, for my desires, for my habits. You all follow me so far? The law doesn't help transform our hearts. The law doesn't change who we are, and the law does not have the same relationship to us as a father, and it certainly cannot bring us by itself into that relationship with God. And so, what was God to do? So, what was God to do? We had a difficult and impossible circumstance of the Father's desire to bring us into family and our inability through our own sin and imperfections to be a part of that family. Well, that brings us to our second point, the status of our adoption in the Son. Let's look back at our passage together. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. As we saw in our gospel this morning, God sent His Son to pay our debts to die for us, and so He could receive us into His family as children. See, the, the Greek word for adoption here means that we might receive 
full rights as sons. Um, in ancient Greece and Rome, what would happen sometimes is if you had a very wealthy person that didn't have an heir, a wealthy person without a child to inherit his estate, what he would do oftentimes is he would go out and he would adopt a child, and this adopted child could then inherit his name and inherit his estate. And through this process of adoption, and it's not unlike our system today, and through this process of adoption, the adopted son, and catch this, had all of his previous debts paid off. If this adopted son was uh, in poverty, if he owed money to anyone, all of that was paid off through his adoption. The adopted son received a new name and a new identity. In a very real sense, began an entirely new life. And perhaps most importantly of all, his status was forever changed, and no one could take that from him. You see, it was in this very way that Scripture explains that Jesus came to pay our debts so that the Father might adopt us as sons and daughters. And as our passage in Galatians shows us, because He was God, Jesus was able to live a perfect life and fulfill the requirements of the law on our behalf and erase our debts. And Jesus is the one who would bring us into the family as adopted sons and daughters of God if we would choose Him. Now, you see, that choice there is so important, that decision to join the family of God. And you might think, well, that's absurd. Why in the world would anybody not choose to be adopted by God? Why would anybody not choose to live a new life in Him to join His family? That's crazy. But is it? I'm reminded of a story of um, an American couple who went overseas and visited an orphanage in order to adopt a child. Now, they had um, spent a lot of years in preparation and a lot of expense in order to go to this orphanage and to adopt a child for their own. They had been wanting it and praying for it and desiring it, and so finally the day comes and they go to the orphanage to meet their adopted child, and uh, as they walk up to the orphanage, they notice that the adults, the caretakers of the children, were kind of nervous and anxious and didn't really want to make eye contact with them. And they were like, okay, that's a little strange what's going on here. And so finally one of them shuffles up and says, you know, uh, the child that you were seeking to adopt doesn't really want to go with you. In fact, uh, none of the children in our orphanage has any desire to be adopted. And the, uh, the couple thought, well, that's really strange, and that's bizarre. What in the world is going on here? Well, the caretakers went on to explain, and they said, well, you know, one of our kids, one of the older boys in the orphanage has kind of established himself here. You know, he's got the corner bunk. You know, he kind of runs the place. He's established his own little kingdom in the orphanage, and he doesn't want to leave because if he were to leave the orphanage he wouldn't be in control anymore of his little kingdom. And so he's kind of desired to stay. And they say, okay, well, what about the other boys? And they said, well, you know, we have another one who uh, is able to join you and, and would be free um, to be adopted. However, 
he's kind of figured out that he can get away with pretty much anything he wants to with the orphanage. You know, we're so busy and distracted, we can't keep an eye on him, and so he kind of just runs around and does whatever he wants, and he's worried that if he were to be adopted, you might set up some rules for him, or you might, you know, create some structure, and and he doesn't want that, so he'd rather stay here. Okay, well, what about this third boy? Well, this third boy was, was actually pretty unhappy at the orphanage, but he was scared. He was scared to experience something new. He didn't know what this new adventure might bring him, and even though he was miserable in the orphanage, at least it was familiar to him. At least he knew his surroundings, and so he's, he would rather not go with you. And there was even a fourth boy. And so the couple said, okay, well, what about this one? And they said, well, you know, he's also pretty miserable here, but he has had a really rough past. And in fact, he is so ashamed of his past that he doesn't believe that he deserves to experience a loving family. He's choosing to punish himself by uh, rejecting your offer to join him and to stay in the orphanage. You see, it might seem crazy to us that anybody would reject to be adopted by God and to join his family, but so often that is where people find their hearts. Unwilling to leave our surroundings and join God, unwilling to take on the status of adopted sons in Jesus Christ and daughters. Which brings us to our third and final point, the experience of our adoption through the Holy Spirit. I want you to join me, and we're going to take one last look at our passage together this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children… God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. You see, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to change our status from strangers to sons, but He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we could experience Him as our Father, so we could know Him as a Father, not just have God be this abstract concept or idea or merely a creed that we recite every Sunday, but to be our actual relational Father. That's the work of the Spirit that has been sent into your hearts and into my heart. A couple months ago, I went on my first out-of-state conference since my son Gabriel was born. And it was only a few days, but it did have a break in our routine because normally uh, my wife, Amy, takes care of our youngest one, Asher, in the morning, and I get Gabriel up, and I get him breakfast and get him ready, and we have our dad-father-son time together. Well, when I was out of town at this conference, it broke the routine. Now, I have to ask you, when I was out of town, was I any less his father? Was he any less my son? No. But was he experiencing me as his father? Was he experiencing the fullness of our father-son relationship? And I would say no. And that was three days, right? That's not a big deal. But if I had been gone for a year or two years or three years or a decade, what do you think his experience, what do you think his beliefs about our relationship would be? Now, here's where this relationship breaks down. I mean, this, here's where this illustration breaks down a little bit. You see, 
God doesn't leave us for vacation, right? God doesn't leave us for business conferences. But if we aren't paying attention to God's work in our hearts, it's very easy for us to walk away from Him and to miss out on the experience of God through the Holy Spirit. And so we need that connection. We need that familiarity. We need that experience with God so that we know not just in our minds, but in our whole selves, into our very bones, that when God looks at us, He delights in us, and He wants us for Himself, and He desires to draw us uh, to Him, and to hold us, and to embrace us. And if that sounds a little sentimental to you, that's because it is. And it is a good, and it is a holy thing that God would desire intimacy with us. And so as we consider our relationship with God this morning, I don't want us to miss out on the fact that your heavenly Father is nothing like your earthly Father. If your earthly Father was an emotionally distant dad, and so you're used to not feeling His love, or if your earthly Father was preoccupied with work, and so not hearing from Him meant that He had something more important to do than you, Or if you could never please your earthly father and he was perpetually disappointed with you, I want you to take that aside and and, and put it away for a moment. Your heavenly father is, is far greater than anything you have yet experienced. He's never too busy for you. He's never preoccupied with other things. He is not emotionally distant from you and he certainly is not perpetually ashamed or disappointed or displeased with you. When he sees you, when he looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness that Jesus gave on our behalf. So let us pray to our Heavenly Father this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sought us out, that you came down from heaven to earth to draw us near to yourself. We thank you that the spirit that you've given us allows us to call you Abba, Dad, Papa. That you're not some cold and distant father that is far removed from us, but you are the father who brings us onto your lap and embraces us and desires to walk with us every step of the way. I pray that as we continue throughout this week, we would seek you out as you are never far from us. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.